to the Lonely Writers Podcast, where we discuss the very real and often overlooked emotional labor that comes with the writing process before, during, and even after the book deal. I'm your host, Eden Boudreaux, and today I am thrilled to chat with USA Today, Toronto Star, Globe and Mail, and Apple Books bestselling author, Samantha M. Bailey, whose latest psychological thriller, Watch Out for Her, centers around a mother who must keep watch at all times if she wants to keep her family safe. When Samantha isn't grinding out best-selling stories, she is likely at home, curled up on her couch in Toronto, reading as much as she can. Thank you so much for joining me today, Samantha. Thank you, Eden, so much for having me. I'm so excited. Um, you know, I mean, I think my heart always lies with Canadian authors, so that's always a, a fun uh, time to get to connect, but even though I don't know if I'll ever be able to write a thriller, my heart lies in thrillers. Like I remember some of the first, they weren't called thrillers back then, but some of the first books that my grandmother introduced me to were like Agatha Christie. Right. And those like really, really fun mysteries that always had a female protagonist. And it was you know, I grew up on Columbo and Perry Mason, and we didn't get to see the ladies like in action. And I love that there are so many more thrillers now where the woman is not just the damsel in distress. Right. And so, you know, for yourself, you have watch out for her that not only has a female protagonist, but a mother. And, you know, they always say, like, don't work with babies or animals. So, <laughs> I, you know, even myself, like with with writing fiction, I've always kind of like steered away from including children because it is a very kind of tricky uh, character to wrangle into the story. Like there's a lot of things that y- you have to adapt. So for Watch Out For Her, was there, you know, was there parts of your own life as a mother that you interjected in there to either keep the realism or, you know, a little tie back? Or was this something that was, you know, just a, a pure fantasy to enjoy writing? Hold on to your hat. Because this is a long, <laughs> a long explanation for an excellent question. <clears throat> um, so it's interesting. So when I first came up with the idea for Watch Out for Her, it was before the pandemic. And I was really happy to finally come to a place in my life where I felt like I had somewhat of a handle on the balance between motherhood and career. I have been a writer since I was 10 years old and having my own identity has always been extremely important to me. My kids always come first, but I always made sure that my own self was important too. Mm -hmm. And so I'd been working from home for 10 years. I was a freelance um, manuscript editor. I still am, but I'm on hiatus right now. And while my kids were at school during the day, I could still, I could volunteer and I could, you know, be on the parent council and I could be fully involved in their lives and I could be fully involved in my life and then in this incredible career that I was lucky enough to finally get after 20 years of writing and five books I'd finally finally my dreams had come true right and so and then the pandemic hit Mm. and all of a sudden I I didn't become my character but all of a sudden, while I had, I, I understood Sarah Goldman, who is a mother who has been a stay-at-home mother for uh, almost seven years, who had stopped being a professional photographer to raise her son. And she was very happy doing that, but felt like she needed to get a, a sense of herself back and wanted to go back into photography, which is how she hires Holly Monroe, the babysitter. Mm. So I understood her, but I wasn't her. And then all of a sudden, pandemic hits, we're on lockdown, we're all isolated together, my kids are now home, 
all the time. I'm getting up at 4 a.m. I'm getting up at 5 a.m. just to find a way to fit my life into their life, trying to make sure that they were as mentally and physically healthy and happy as possible. And I would say, yes, that the, the lines did blur a little bit. I, mm. I, I, I began to uh, relate and connect to her more than I'd expected to because the situation had changed, changed so much. Um, while <laughs> I'm admittedly overprotective, I am not as anxious as Sarah. While a part of me wishes I could watch the people who watch my children, I never would. <laughs> um, but definitely throughout the course of the pandemic, I really struggled to find that sense of who am I as a person, as well as being a mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, what's really interesting about that is that it sounds like it should be something that is so natural to, to do. Um, and yet still this day and age, it's still very often very villainized when, um, you know, when a mother wants to separate her personality from being a mother, you know, Oh, I'm a mom and I'm a writer. You know, no mm-hmm. dad ever says, oh, I'm a dad and I'm a corporate lawyer. And, I, you know, it's I'm a corporate lawyer who has kids. It, it's never the same narrative. And it's it, it always boggles my mind when it is still kind of demonized a little bit for or seen as selfish for yeah. a mother to try to, you know, carve out her own space in her own life, you yes. know? It's, it's so true. And I always wonder, is it us or is it them? I mean, this is the proverbial them. Right. I feel guilty. I feel guilty. Um, and then I, I'm mad at myself for feeling guilty because I'm, I, I'm a feminist and I, 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 I want, right. and I have a daughter. I want my daughter to see that, that you can have it almost all. I don't know, you know, the expression mm-hmm. you can have it all. I don't know yeah. what it really means, but I want my daughter to know you are a woman, hear me roar. Right. <laughs> I, I, and I, but at the same time, I, I, I do feel guilty when I say I have to do this and it is nothing to do with you children. Right. And there is a part of me that wants to say, and I'm sorry. And I think, but, but why am I sorry when right. you're also almost 12 and almost 15? Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> They probably don't want to spend time with us. (laughs) I don't know know why I'm sorry or why there's that guilt or why, yes, why it's seen as selfish to want to be our our, our own people. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. I don't, honestly, it's, you know, I'm a feminist as well, but I always try to, I try to be careful with the burning broad narrative, you know, like I I never want to come off as being too one side or the other, because then the problem is, is then that just gives people fodder to say like, look at this extremist. Right. But I do honestly think that sometimes it comes from the patriarchal society that we're raised in. You know, I know I'm not sure if we're similar in ages, but you know, I'm almost 40. So I'm raised by boomers. (laughs) You're so much younger. (laughs) But okay, but we're all, you know, we're probably both raised by boomers, who were the workaholic generation, right? And, you know, work don't show love kind of thing. And I think that it's, I think that it, it falls very often on mothers. But I think in general, it just comes from women are not allowed to derive pleasure in something. And Mm. it all comes down to that kind of base of like, like even with my work, like so often I get caught up in, well, if this isn't making me money, I'm not allowed to enjoy it. And it, I I so often hear from women that, that we have to almost sacrifice enjoying what we do because it's seen as selfish or it's seen as greedy or, or whatever. And it's such a shame because I think that the more that you love what you do or the more that you love being a mother or et cetera, the better job you do of it. You know, it's so, it's so interesting. You say that going back to the word feminist, you're right. When I say, when I say it, 
it doesn't feel natural falling off my tongue right. as a an, I'm an equalist. I don't even know. I I, <laughs> I just I just want love and acceptance for all. It's all is all I want. Yes. Um, I grew up in a very passionate household, and I grew up with so much love. And I grew up with a mother who had her own career. My mother was a publicist for authors, freelance, wow. had her own business. Yes, had her own business. And, and I remember, you know, and, and I admire her. I actually wish I could be more like her because I remember she'd be in, you know, the kitchen, which is exactly where I work too. Yeah. And she'd be on a phone call or she'd be working. And I'd say, you know, mom, 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 mom. And the <laughs> look I got shut me down so fast. I try to do the same thing with mm-hmm. my kids. And, and I mean, it's almost laughable. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know how, what she did exactly. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I'd have to ask her, did she feel the, the guilt? I mean, she, she was so there for me, my mom mm-hmm. and my dad, they were both so present, so present, but definitely it did not feel the same as it feels now. And I wonder for me, at least because I am almost 49, if it's because I am part of the helicopter parent generation. Mm, Yeah, it could be. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think all of it is a collection of experiences, you know, and, and it is, it, it is an interesting place that we get to in our lives when we realize that, our parents are humans and not godlike creatures. <laughs> right. right. And you know, so you're seeing your mother from the perspective of her being able to, you know, snap her fingers and look down at you and you, oh, okay, mom. But I'm sure that it took a very long time for her to be able to do that without then having that knee-jerk reaction of, oh my God, I'm a horrible mom. But she just didn't show it, you know, and we all I think we all are a collection of those experiences and do, you know, similar things. There are many times that I will, you know, gleefully tell the kids I have to write tonight. You guys have to leave me alone. You got to have craft dinner. I got to do this. (laughs) And then the smallest thing will, you know, I'll hear their father in the other room playing around with them or teasing or joking. And I'll have that moment where I'm like, oh, fuck. Now I feel bad. And it's like, they didn't do anything, but I'm making myself feel bad. <laughs> it's, 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 oh my gosh, that you just, you just actually, I think hit the nail on the head because my family always says to me, you told us that you're working yet you're here micromanaging again, yet you're here, not letting us do our own thing. Mm-hmm. You don't need to involve yourself, but there is that part of me is like, but I do. Yes. Because I, I feel like I think I need that sense of control, which is, which right. is so much a, a theme in the book. And then, you know, I think it's that idea of if I don't control what is happening, everything will be out of control. Right. Yeah. And then we just end up getting in our own way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe it's us. Maybe it's maybe. all us. I, I think it's a mix so, of everything. I think it is a mix of something. But that that takes me back to, you know, wanting to ask then, you know, let's, let's dive a little bit more into your origin story. Then if you, you know, you had a mom who was a publicist for authors, I can imagine there must've been quite a bit of support when you decided you wanted to be a writer, but was it a, you know, was it a pretty clear cut decision from you? You said you started to start writing at 10. <laughs> I don't imagine you started publishing then. So no, you know, I was what rejected. was kind of that ger- <laughs> at 10? How dare yes. they? Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was that like a uh, Hillroy magazine in the doctor's office. They said, no, thank you, ma'am. No, it was kids can press. <laughs> go. So how did that journey look like for you where, you know, it sounds like you had a very supportive home life and, you know, how was that journey? Um, I do know how lucky I am to have a very supportive home life. I grew up surrounded by books, surrounded, surrounded, pretty much able to read anything I wanted. And I always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know that you could do it as a career. Like I really didn't know that that I, I didn't know that I, it was what I wanted to do, but I, I didn't imagine it. And when I imagined it back then, I always imagined I'm in this little dark room 
like Ernest Hemingway with like a glass of, I don't know, scotch or whiskey yeah. beside me. I must've been, yeah, I'm like 11 years old. I'm imagining my whiskey. My scotch. <laughs> I've, been, I've been dark since I was little. And at the time, so then um, I, I, I thought I'd be, I always thought actually for a long time, I'd be a psychologist or a dancer. Actually, mm. I was a competitive jazz dancer when I was growing up. I wanted to go to Juilliard. And so I had two passions, dance and um, dance and writing. And then I never grew past five feet tall. And yeah, which doesn't work really well in the dance world. Um, and I also had terrible stage fright. And so I gave up dancing and it was the last time I gave up on something I really wanted actually. It was the last time mm. I walked away from something that scared me. Um, I didn't start writing novels, um, like full length novels until I was 29. So 29 years old, I started writing full length novels. And still, even at that point, I didn't think I could do it um, full time as a sustainable career, probably mm. because I had written um, four books that had been you know, re rejected across the board by, by editors. I, I had an agent at that time, my first agent, but mm. I was getting rejected. So how could I base a career off something that wasn't getting anywhere? Right. Um, but I never gave up. So I was just, I would keep going and I was going to keep going until I got that traditional publishing deal. If it killed me, I was just going to keep <laughs> going. <laughs> but at the same time, I, uh, I, I went and got a master's degree in applied linguistics. I um, taught um, English. Uh, I taught uh, grammar and writing for about 15 years. I became a freelance editor. I, I, did still think maybe psychology would be something I would want to do. Um, it wasn't until I got the deal for Woman on the Edge for my debut where I thought this might really be possible. This might really be something that I can do. I might really be able to live my passion full time. I might really get... Um, that almost unattainable dream because it's a really hard business to be in. Yeah. Um, and while, you know, writing, as any author knows, uh, the success is, it's fleeting and it can be fleeting and it's mm -hmm. not stable. But the fact that I now get to sit here in my little kitchen office at my computer writing and, and um, having books published and I get to do it still feels so surreal to me that I, I can't actually believe that it's happened. And in my head, I still think of, you know, those, I guess, other careers that maybe, maybe I'll still, I'll still be yeah. a psychologist one day. Maybe I'll still like, talk to a dancer, but maybe, you know, there are still <laughs> uh, other things that I may have on the horizon to do. Um, but it, it was something I always wanted. Right. And what was, so for, to have four books rejected and <laughs> uh, once you've already obtained an agent, yeah. I mean, so many people don't even get through the agenting process these days. So you've achieved an agent and then to still be rejected that many times, I don't know how many people wouldn't just give up. What, what was it for, was it like just an unnameable thing drive inside you that you were just so determined to achieve this or, or was there really like a, a tangible reason why you continue to kind of push through all of that rejection? I'm very stubborn. So that's first <laughs> of all, I do think I have an internal drive to succeed and there was no way in hell I was giving up on something I really wanted and living with that regret. I refuse, refuse to live with regret at not fighting for something I really want and not going after it with everything in me. Because mm -hmm. to me, yeah, to me, life is about passion, happiness, going after everything you want and taking all the risks. Mm -hmm. And understanding that it is your own journey. And I think that is what helped me too, plus all the support. 
I believed in myself, but other people believed in me. And right. I always knew that it was my own path. I always knew I wasn't going to be an over. No, I didn't always know. At first, I thought <laughs> I was going to be an overnight success. And I was going to be like, you know, what you see, you know, you know, six figure deal, 24 yeah. hours. You get, I, I thought everyone thinks everyone has that everyone. hope. hope. But it <laughs> Came very clear that wasn't going to be me. So I knew I had my own path and my own journey and I'd stay in my own lane. And that if I just focused on my own steps, mm-hmm. that I would get there. I didn't know how long it was going to take. I didn't know it was going to take. If you had told me it was going to take 20 years. Yeah. You know, I might have been like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> worth it. I have to say, though, it was looking back and seeing where I, 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 I got to. I mean, just the sheer, there's a lot of luck that goes into it, but then you know, just where, where I got to mm. and the utter gratitude I have and, and disbelief over where I've gotten to, it was so worth it. All of it, every book, no wasted words, all of it was so worth it. Yeah. I don't believe in luck. I've never, I, I never subscribed to that because I think it takes away the power that you have to control your life. And I think what you've just said is so smart and so relatable to a lot of people because it is your journey. And I think because writing and being a successful writer does involve other people having to have a hand in your success. You have to have not necessarily an agent, but you have to have a publisher. You have to have, there, there's, there is many other people that have to factor into it. And I can imagine that it often feels like it's, you don't have control over your own journey, but you have to, you have to have a hold of that steering wheel. And I know for myself, you know, you said you were stubborn that resonated because for me, I think most of my success is coming from just being blatantly defiant (laughs) and just every time, you know, every time being, I'm being told no, just fuels me to be like, absolutely, I'm going to do this now. (laughs) Simply because you told me no. (laughs) And and that, but you know, that is taking control of your journey because if not, I would have just let someone tell me, no, I can't be a writer. Okay, fine. I go on and do something else, but I'm not the one choosing to do it. They're the one who just chose that for me. And so the (laughs) you make such a wonderful point about, you know, I think we need to be more kind of defiant and more, you know, kind of pushy and stubborn and saying, this is what I want. There's no reason why I can't achieve that. So now with 20 years in the business, so many things have changed. I mean, just in the last two, three years alone with the pandemic, I mean, I think a lot of people for a long time thought it was going to demolish the book industry And if anything, it's increased it. It has just given so much power to it. Do you feel like your writing has, you know, had to kind of adapt with the, you know, highs and lows of the way the industry has changed so much in the last 10, 22 years even? Um, Have you had to kind of adapt or sacrifice any of the way that you write um, to, you know, continue and have your career be successful? Oh, that's such a good question. I think I have learned so much from my agent, my editors, my community of authors. When I first started writing, I was what's called, as you know, a panster. I would just, I would just, I would just write. I would just go. I would just write out these jobs and I would just go. And I would, I would just, well, it's interesting. I, I, it was very freeing. Can't say my drafts were good, but it was very freeing. (laughs) And then of course, for me at least, and I think with thrillers, for me at least, I know thriller authors who, who don't need to outline. Um, And wow, do I want to live in their brains? But yeah, I, yeah, (laughs) I, had to learn how to outline and I had to learn to really develop the characters and their backstories and their motivations and arcs and the beats and the clues and the and the plot mm. and the structure and the POVs and you know the tense I mean there's all these things that go into it and I had to decide I have to now decide all of that beforehand and so that changed 
in a major way, in good ways for the most part, good ways for the most part, because I um, have a map to follow. I have a guide. Still doesn't mean my first drafts are still, you know, they really, <laughs> they really need work. I mean, my, my first drafts, I don't but I just, you know, I go, but an issue I do have when I'm uh, working and my outlines are 15 to 17 pages. So my issue with writing an outline um, and because they, they can be 15 to 17 pages long is I sometimes become very married to my outline mm. and um, I almost need an open relationship with my outline. I need to kind of let the, the outline go and forget that it's there. It is the same when, when I'm writing the outline, I get very married to my premise. And mm. so I have to make sure I, I remind myself, let my characters lead me, let my characters lead me. And then when I do that, they lead me into the darkest corners and places yes. I um, never imagined going. <laughs> and I love those surprises. <laughs> so it's, it's, so those, these are all things I, I still am learning as I go in. Um, right. So that has changed my writing a lot in terms of, you know, what I can and cannot do and what I need to learn mm-hmm. to do. Um, and have others found yeah. with, have you found also with the surge in kind of thriller and true crime media that you have a much more intelligent and kind of keen reader as well. You know, I always hear, I think that one of the big reasons I could not be a thriller writer is because I have such raging ADHD that I could never keep track of the red herrings and the clues and the suspicions and, you know, things like that. Do do you find that since people are consuming this kind of media so much more that they're smarter. And, and you, do you ever feel pressure that you have to really make it quite almost devious to get your reader all the way to the end? So I'll I'll go back to the, how, how do I keep track of things first? Uh, Walls of post-its. I have walls and walls of post-its, you know, guides, maps, to keep track of everything. And then my editor and my critique partners and everyone who, right. You know, you just, you know, that character, you killed them off like three drafts ago. Why are they still (laughs) in there? Why are they still in there? In terms of the market and the reader and where things stand, there are, yes, so many thrillers out there, so many different kinds of thrillers out there. And I think people are consuming them uh, like candy because mm-hmm. there's such an amazing escape and their entertainment and there's something relatable in there. And I love reading thrillers. I devour mm. them. Not Same. just because I'm a writer, because they're yummy. <laughs> hey there, lonely writer. If you are enjoying this episode, please head over to our Kofi page using the link in the show notes to make a one-time donation or Sign up to become a monthly supporter. The Lonely Writer is booked, produced, edited, and hosted by a team of one, which makes it a genuine passion project. Your support means more freedom to continue producing new and exciting episodes for your listening every week. Thank you. Now, let's return to the show. Yes, they're just, it's funny because I, I always, I am, I am the most basic bitch on dark mode. I am so obsessed with true crime. And my husband is like, why do you watch this? Like, it's always women getting murdered and raped and, you know, kidnapped. And, and it's this, I, I haven't entirely figured it out, but it, I don't know if it's just the like needing to like know the inner workings and like almost feeling a little in control of that narrative that has for so long, you know, used us as props. And uh, it's so thrillers are this place, that, like you said, it's kind of an escapism where you get to be in charge and it's so very exciting. Is that, you know, the kind of thing that still brings you back to the story, that excitement? It's the excitement and, and it's a place where I can not, I can put all my fears and I can read about my worst fears. And you said something 
so interesting about the reader getting you know keener. I don't think the readers got gotten keener. Um, actually, I think readers have always been keen. And, you know, they've always um, picked up on things. I think um, there is more pressure on the author mm. to make sure that your book stands out. Right. Not in a sense of competition, not as a sense of, you know, I'm trying to write something better than, than anyone else. Hell no. Hell no. I admire my fellow writers so much. I mean, all, mm. all of them. I am trying to better myself. I am trying mm. to compete only with myself to write something that stands out, that makes people think, that scares people, that makes them feel, that entertains them. And yes, the pressure is on um, to do that. I don't know if it's necessarily more devious, um, but it is, I think there is a pressure to make twists. Mm. Um, as uh, hard to detect <laughs> as, right. pos as possible. And that is hard. It must be. It must be so, it, it, like fitting all of these puzzle pieces together without them seeing them. It's, it, 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 I have such a respect for that kind of the craft because it's really not I mean on top of your needing to have a plot structure needing to have you know full dimensional characters you then also just have so many other pieces that you have to keep in line and you know was there ever a point uh in your career that that you ever not got tired of it but kind of got to like I just want to write something happy and easy <laughs> Did you ever have that kind of moment where you thought like, maybe I just want to like use a pen name and write romance? <laughs> no. So that's it. I started out writing rom-com. Oh, I wrote edgy okay. rom-com. Yes. That, those were the books I wrote when I was 29. I loved rom-com. I wanted to write thrillers, but I was very scared to do it because of mm. the amount of research and, and the structure. So I can tell you rom-coms, it's not, they're not easier for sure. Mm -hmm. but they are happier <laughs> right they are, they are happier. <laughs> it's just such a different sense of structure and, and there's right. a different kind of pressure in it because uh, you know rom-com tropes and it's um so it's just such a different sense of writing I didn't I didn't necessarily find it easier and I loved doing it and I'd never say never to go back but I just found that I've always been drawn to the darkness mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a happy light person drawn to the darkness and after I had kids, I really wanted to write about the darkness. Right. And, and, and the complicated, messy, imperfect, flawed uh, people that, you know, exist in books and exist in real life. Right. I think that that's really um, interesting. And I think that that is a, a really important thing for aspiring writers to hear, because I think sometimes people who write fiction feel one of two ways. They either feel like they can get away with not putting enough of themselves in their books, or they feel like they don't have to, or, or you know, it's not going to require a lot of emotional sacrifice. But I feel like even when you write romance, you are tapping in to your lived experiences, even if it's not exactly, you know, you didn't exactly have a nanny that you had to watch, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, you're still tapping into, like you said, these, these moments of wanting to watch and wanting to kind of hover over your family and your loved ones and be able to watch their every moves and micromanage those, you know, and then you're just taking that and you're unpacking it into this fictional world. So, you know, there's always going to be kind of an emotional, you know, currency that we put into whatever we write, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And, you know, for, for that being a mom, you know, writing watch out for her during the pandemic I mean writing anything <laughs> during the pandemic yeah, yeah yeah but like you said going from working at home having your free space having that time we all know how hard it is to get just even to get into the mindset to write to all of a sudden now I have this house full of people 
what was that experience like, you know, even with a family being supportive, there's still, it's just still such a toss up of your everyday structure. How much more difficult was it to write this book in the midst of the pandemic and with a family and all that kind of thing? What were kind of your biggest challenges, would you say? It was both excruciating, (laughs) to be honest, excruciating and incredibly cathartic. Mm. So I felt a lot of pressure and excitement to write a second novel after Woman on the Edge, Mm. um, the success of which I I could only ever have dreamed of. And I'm not even sure in my wildest dreams I ever imagined, (laughs) you know, um, hitting number one, hitting number one. I mean, that's, it's so, it's like I said, it's, it's just so surreal to me that I sometimes, you know, look at, I, I framed it, of course I framed it. Right. So I, fr- I framed it, I framed <laughs> it and I, I walk past and I look at it. And I'm like, is that me? That's so none you. of that, it's me, but it doesn't feel real. So, but I, I was on deadline to write, mm. you know, a second, a second novel. And the second novel is really hard in general mm. because now, you know, now you know what's going to happen <laughs> when, when the yeah. book comes out. You know what the process is going to be. And the, it's an amazing, amazing process. And it fills my soul, but it is also painful and torturous. Um, you know, writing is, what do they say? Torturous fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I used to only be able to write when it was fairly quiet. Mm-hmm. And... I'd need a quiet space. And so I wrote, I wrote in the hours when it wasn't anybody here. Um, and I very quickly had to get right used to writing in chaos. Uh, mm-hmm. I had to get used to, I don't, I don't like headphones on my head, so I can't even wear noise canceling headphones. Right. Um, so I get like squeezing my skull. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I got used to writing in chaos. I found like I learned a lot. I became a different person. Maybe a stronger mm. person in some ways. Um, I had to just get it done. I just had to roll up my sleeves and get it done. I had to learn to write in um, shorter increments where before I could write for hours. Now I was writing, you know, um, before recess and lunch because Mm -hmm. of recess and lunch, then everybody's down here and everything's crazy and then people need help with something or their, you know, internet is is out. Right, yes. Um, And then there's homework and making sure that, everybody actually gets some pressure and exercise. So I wrote, I, I learned to write in shorter increments. I learned to write in a more focused way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I, like I said before, had never felt so cramped <laughs> um, through those three lockdowns. The last one being the hardest because I'd gotten through two of them and I felt like, okay, I'd gotten through two and things were looking so much better. And then we went into the third lockdown in Toronto, in Ontario. And I thought, I don't know if I can do this one more time, but I have to do this one more time. Right. So I'm going to do this one more time. And at the same time that I was writing, I had to stay as positive for my kids, you know, and just, and be their emotional, um, you know, safety net. Right. And so everything that I wasn't expressing um, because I didn't want to scare anyone, (laughs) you know, how, how, you know, really I was how tired of the situation getting, Um, I poured it into my writing. And so that's Mm. where it became cathartic. I would, I would pour it into my writing. I would just put everything I had into my words, into the characters, into my books. They weren't, and again, they, Sarah and Holly, they're not me, Mm -hmm. but I can access those emotions. Exactly. you know, their worries and the fears and the anxiety and the nervousness, the paranoia. I could access all that and I could take everything I had and put it in there. Um, but it was just losing and entirely losing my, my own sense of space mm-hmm. made me long, long. I'd always wanted an office. I have no office space. I have no door. I have mm-hmm. nowhere to go where I can close the door. I long for my own space and right. so that is something I think it's it, it's become very clear to me how important it is for me to try to somehow find my own space to write right yeah I think that that's a, a really 
beautiful takeaway just in, in general, just in the prioritizing. And I think so much of it comes down to realizing how much you have to prioritize. You have to prioritize your time, your energy, your mental well-being. You have to prioritize each and every single word you put on the page. I mean, I used to write for hours, like you said, and it was like so much of it was throwaway words, though, because I would just write and write and write and write. And like you said, like when the kids are home, you're really in this little crunch period. And it's like, so if I get the chance to write 54 words, those are fucking amazing 54 words. Like I, I, I don't even <laughs> yeah. care if I keep them. I love those goddamn 54 words. Like it's, you really start, I think as much as I would never want to relive the pandemic, <laughs> I think it has caused a lot of us to shift our priorities and to understand where we fall on our priorities list and how oftentimes we need to be higher. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I believe, and I hope for you, I think that going into the future years and your future books, even if the kids are at school and things like that, I feel like your, your writing process is, our writing process is going to look different yes. coming out of this pandemic. You know, it's, it is just going to look so much more about prioritizing ourselves and our needs and what we need to get to where we want to go. I think what it's also done is show us the power of community. Mm, yes. That we prioritize ourselves and we as authors and the entire actually publishing and book and literary community has come together to support each other to, and, and I think it's, it is easier to, pri- to prioritize yourself and your career and your, your art and your passion when other people are also doing it at the same time. Yes. Right. Yes. And so to have, you know, that's, I think it's been to me, one of the most beautiful things to come out of this trauma Mm -hmm. of the pandemic is how everyone has helped each other. That it, it has all been about, I've got your back. I'm with you, whatever you need, I'm here. Um, Let's get each other to where we need to be together. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, you know, again, I'm, I'm new enough to the industry and, you know, very often uh, before the pandemic, I would feel very kind of an outsider. I didn't go to university for it. I wasn't in, you know, the literary elite circles that so few of us are in, but I feel like that kind of thing, that kind of segregation, even just in our own industry has really started to wane. I mean, there's still definitely, you know, the, the, you know, nose up in the air types, you know, but I feel like as writers, we all kind of were like, we need each other right now. Mm -hmm. We need to check in and see whose head is slipping below the surface of the water because because Twitter is a hellscape and Instagram is nice, but it only works for so long and we're all (laughs) stuck in our house. Oh, like, you know, we're introverts and it's great to be at home, but everybody else is here too. And (laughs) yes, yes, that's it. Exactly. Not as great as, as it sounds. So, you know, I, I completely agree. I really feel like there was a, a a changing of the guard in our industry. and, And so many of us just realized that we needed to, come together and, and just hold each other up. Yeah. I felt it before. I think commercial fiction, I don't know the literary fiction world. So the commercial fiction world to me, especially, you know, I mean, everywhere, but the Canadian authors, we have a fierce, tight knit, Mm. warm, supportive group of authors. I mean, I think they're probably about 50 of us. I mean, (laughs) mean, it's it's a really, and it's all across Canada all across Mm -hmm. Canada, we are, we are a strong group of writers who help each other and, and have for very long. Right. Um, so I think what maybe made it easier with different genres or different, you know, communities of writers or across the world has been the ability to access each other on the internet. Right. 
that we didn't really make as much use of before. I mean, Zoom, right? Mm. Like Zoom wasn't, 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 you know, none of us knew. I mean, we still, we still have so many, you know, issues when it comes to tech. I do, I do (laughs) so many issues, but we, we began to communicate more online and we began Mm. to see each other and we began to do events together online. Things that we'd only, you know, before really done in person. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's made a massive difference. So to round out our conversation today, talking about, you know, prioritizing and the things that we need to appreciate more, uh, we're going to do a a weekly segment that I like to call our weekly fuck yeses. So (laughs) I do not think that we celebrate enough. And especially as moms, we do not celebrate enough the small wins. Uh, And so I want to give you the opportunity to share with us something recently that has, you know, was expected or unexpected that just went really, really right. And you were like, it was just that moment where you're like, fuck yes. Like, oh, thank you. Yes, yes, this is it. I want to give you the opportunity to share that with us. Something that happened to me that Mm. I celebrated. Okay. So there are so many things in publishing you can't control. Something you can't control is, you know, uh, let's just say sales and uh, exposure. And my publisher is amazing. My publicist, Simon Schuster, they are, they're phenomenal. They're phenomenal. They do, they do so much for me. Uh, the support of the bookstagrammers, the bookstagrammers and all these people who do some great there's only so much I can do myself. There's only so much that anybody can do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the most unexpected, incredible thing that can happen that makes you believe that anything is possible. So do you know who Teddy Mellencamp is? Yes, I do. I am yeah. a real housewife aficionado. <laughs> me too, me too. All right, so last summer, because when we were on lockdown, I would take them on these late night adventure drives, whatever we go out, you know, mm. they would lead me where I was going to go, pick up garbage, come home and eat it at home. We'd just come home with one of these late night adventures. I go on my Instagram and I see that I- I'm tagged in a story by Teddy mm. Mellencamp about woman on the edge. <gasps> at first, I thought it was a total scam. I thought someone's playing with me. I, I, that's where my mind goes immediately. Something like that. I'm like, I'm being, I'm being played in the most awful way. Okay, it turns out it's real. She somehow found Woman on the Edge and she loved it. And she puts it in her, she put it in her story. She's, she's wonderful. She's so nice and so kind. And so wow. She gives it to Kyle Richards. Kyle oh. Richards puts it in her, in her Instagram. Okay. So that already, I was like, I can Wow. Right. And girling hard. Uh, me too. <laughs> and it wasn't, and, and other friends of mine, I had friends texting me. They're like, oh my God, do you know that you're a book? And Teddy Mellencamp's uh, uh, IG stories. I was like, oh my God, I know. I can't believe this is happening. Wow. We sent her watch out for her because of course we sent of course. her watch out, Right. Of course. Can't pass that opportunity up. And uh, just recently, she um, did another story about Watch Out for Her, and she put it on her favorite spring break reads. She has a shop, I think it's called Shop LMK, mm. where she has a little shop, and she had uh, a list of her, I think, five spring break reads, and Watch Out for Her was one of her five spring break reads. Wow. I could never, there was nothing that I could have done to get that kind of support from someone who obviously is so well known and a celebrity right not like and I never expected it I could Mm -hmm. never have planned for it it was one of those moments where I was so blown away and stunned and I once again learned that you never know what's around the corner it's just kismet sometimes yeah but to me that is just the universe's way of saying, you know what? You worked really fucking hard. Here you go. Here's a little hand up. That is so amazing. Yeah, it was. I, I mean, stuff like that, when it happens, you just like, life is good. Yeah. Good, you know, and it's, it's a beautiful benchmark that you're yeah. never going to forget. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, congratulations. Thank that you. Is Thank you. Thank you. And I feel, you know, now I'm like, I know you have to on camp. Like that just feels. It's Your housewife like, approved. You can die <laughs> yes, now. <laughs> that is like screw the New York Times bestsellers list. Like, just <laughs> that's me nice too. I mean, of I Kyle Richards. <laughs> listen, the goalpost always changes, and exactly, and, and, and there's no the possibilities are endless. There's no yes. end to what everybody can achieve in their own time in their own way. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Oh, well, Samantha, I've had so much fun talking with you. I want you to let our listeners know where they can find you online so that they can stay up to date. So we're recording now. And by the time this episode comes out, Watch Out For Her will be released the very next week. So let our listeners know online where they can find you so that they can either quickly pre-order or get their hands on a copy as soon as it comes out. So I was going to say, you can find Watch Out For Her at all um, online and uh, online retailers and wherever books are sold. Uh, if you want to go pick it up and pre-order it or order it, please, please, please do. And you can find me uh, at S. Bailey Books on Instagram and Twitter and Samantha Bailey Author on Facebook. I'm very active on Instagram and Facebook. I love to connect with my readers. So, you know, always uh, feel free to reach out to me, um, check out what I'm doing, and I will post what I'm up to and all my events and where I'm at. And my website is samanthamdaily.com. Wonderful. And I agree with Sam. Get out pre pre-order that book. But also what I always kind of uh, urge our listeners to do is head to your local independent bookstore. Um, If they don't have copies of Watch Out For Her coming in, email them, call them, tweet them, because trust me, they want to put that book in your hands. They will get they will get copies to you. So, you know, try them first before we go to our our big brothers and sisters at the, you know, big guys. And um, thank you so much again, Sam. This has been so much fun. Thank you, Eden. This made my day. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite show. Thank you again, and until next time, Lonely Writers, be well. Be well.